Take your Bibles, if you will, again with me and turn to the letter of Romans, Romans chapter 9. We have been working our way systematically through the book of Romans. We have seen the theology portion of the book, and yet many say that chapters 9 through 11 are not the theology portions. But over the last several weeks, we have been working our way through Romans 9, and indeed we have discovered that it is. We are not to the application, it is not a paragraph or rather a parenthesis within the letter to the Romans, but this is another area of theology. This is the area of Israelology in many respects. And so we have the joy of looking into it again this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, that we will join there in just a moment. But the reaction of children when a parent takes away a child while they're fighting over it gives a picture of classic human behavior that is illustrated in this passage. So think about the the situation. The child is wrestling with their sibling. I know this because I have children who wrestle with their siblings. And so they're wrestling over the toy, and I step in and I take the toy. What is the first thing that comes out of my oldest child's mouth? That's not fair. I had it. He didn't. It's not fair. You see, that is classic human behavior. In the whiniest voice she can muster. It's not fair. However, even the casual observer can see that the idea of fairness is very much in the eye of the beholder. And as we move into this passage, we have this idea about us that it's just not fair. And that is really the issue that Paul wants to address with us. So you see, our culture has morphed into basing fairness on the opinion of the most vocal of society whether or not they are the majority. So when we read Romans 9.13, which says this, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Many shudder. And with the whiniest voice they can muster declare, that's not fair. The idea that I want us to focus on this morning as we ask this question, what about Israel? And we see Paul's answer as God's sovereignty. The idea that I want us to take home with us is this. Believers should take great joy in knowing the mercy of our Lord as demonstrated by His righteous sovereignty. Believers should take great joy in knowing the mercy of our Lord as demonstrated by His righteous sovereignty. As we prepare to enter into this Romans chapter 9, Let's ask our Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. It is a challenging passage. It is a difficult passage, and it is one that is difficult to not only communicate, but wrap our minds around. And so as we get into this passage today, let's ask the Lord's leading and guidance to do so. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the opportunity in which we have to study Your Word. Lord, we love Your Word. We love You, and we love what it reveals to us. We know it's going to push us. It's going to change us today. We live in a culture that is all about fairness, but fairness is... Uh, frankly, in the eye of the beholder. And so we will look to the solid rock, the firm foundation upon which we build um, upon the doctrine that we have studied already. As we move through this Romans chapter 9, we recognize that we have a lot to learn. Even though Paul is specifically addressing the issues of Israel, he takes a sideline for just a moment this week. As he does so, I pray that we'd be faithful to your word, faithful to the text of your word, that the word spoken would be accurate and clear and that your name would be glorified in all that is said. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
We are on a quest to understand how the promises of chapter 8 can possibly be fulfilled. You see, in chapter 8, we have these promises, one of which is nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if that is true, then the mind of those who are observing must ask this question. If that is true for the believer, then what about Israel? What about Israel? Aren't they children of God? And so we've been moving through the theology of chapter 9 as Paul begins to explain what there is to know about Israel. And as we do so, we recognize three points this morning. Because last week we began to understand God's election of Israel. And today we still ask this question, what about Israel? And we ask the question, or we rather get the answer, of God's sovereignty. And so we have two questions that Paul issues to us. The first is, is God just? Can God possibly be just to condemn Israel and yet at the same time say that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Question two. Because of the truth we find in question one, can God find fault? Because it is by His will that we are chosen. And finally... Paul sums everything up by bringing us back to Israel, by recognizing what the Lord is still doing through this people that is so precious to Him. God has not signed light them forever. And we're going to look at the Lord's faithfulness as we close out through verse 29 of chapter 9 this morning. But let's begin in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. The scripture there says in chapter 9, Uh, Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You see, we must deal with the difficult reality of what Paul is addressing. And that is found here in verse 14. Because you and I, uh, from this world that we live in, have this natural feeling that we should say, you know what, that's not fair. God, that's not fair. And so Paul returns back to this point. And returning to where we left off last week in verse 13, we find that the Lord chose Isaac... And the Lord chose Jacob, but He did not choose Ishmael, and He did not choose Esau. And you may have been left last week with the question, but how is that fair? How is that fair? This leads Paul to return to the familiar style that we have observed all through the book of Romans. And he asks a rhetorical question. Is there injustice in God? And before another word is spoken, and before I'm going to speak another word, Paul addresses with the most powerful, emphatic, no, possible. May it never be. May it never be. MacArthur, discussing this term in this passage, says of this phrase, the idea is of a no, 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 a thousand times no. That's what Paul is saying. But in sinful, depraved men, the idea of God choosing without an opportunity to do good or bad, as we saw last week, to accept or reject Him, it seems unfair from God. 
but getting right to the heart of the matter that leads to the question, we do not have, or rather, do we have the right to accuse God of being unjust? You see, that is ultimately the point Paul wants us to get to. Do you and I, who are uh, maybe vessels of mercy now, hopefully you've come to know Christ as Savior, you are a vessel of mercy, but do you have the right to question, the right to accuse God of being unjust? Paul's about to lay it out for us as we look first at those who receive mercy, verses 15 and 16. We've already read. And Paul, in this uh, two verses, he's reminding the readers of his letter, uh, of this letter, back in Exodus 33. So turn back, if you will, just briefly. We don't have much time to follow many of these trails, but we will follow some of them. Exodus 33, verse 19. Exodus 33, 19. And in order to build some context, I will do that for you in just a moment, but look at this verse here. Verse 19. Exodus 33, 19. And we will back that up just a little bit into verse 18. It says this, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will have, will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, the context of this passage, if you turn back just a couple chapters, is the situation of the golden calf. Israel has uh, abjectly disobeyed God. And in disobeying God, the result is the death of 3,000 Israelites. And the anger of the Lord is brought upon them. But as these events unfold, Moses asks uh, for understanding at the beginning of this chapter 33. He asks for understanding to know the Lord better. To know the Lord better. You see, Moses, in a fit of rage, breaks the the tablets of which the law is written on. He feeds the golden calf in a powder form to all of the Israelites. 3,000 of them die. Some some very incredible things happen in this few verses, or few chapters. But as the events unfold, Moses asks for understanding to know God more. And this verse is part of that conversation. Moses wants to know God. And God tells him, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul takes that back in Romans. And back in Romans, God will have mercy on whom He desires, both in the present and in the future. Notice what Paul says here as he quotes this verse. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God will have mercy on whomever he desires to, now and in the future. And this reveals the very sovereignty of God, which we're going to explore more of in a moment. Because Paul wants us to understand something. When we ask this question, is it fair that God would choose some and not others, we must understand that God is absolutely sovereign. And He's absolutely just. And He's absolutely righteous. There is something that we must understand within the context as well. And it's going to build towards where we are going. We have no right to demand from God. And furthermore... God has laid under no obligation, or is laid rather, under no obligation by human will or human work. When we recognize God's sovereignty, we must understand that He is not subject to your opinion. 
it does not matter because he is sovereign. A participation in God's mercy is dependent upon God's sovereignty alone. And so now we move into the sovereign authority that we find here in verses 17 and 18. And Paul uses another illustration, this one of Pharaoh. And he takes us back to Exodus chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. And we need to turn there as well as we build uh, the case for what Paul is saying. Because remember, Paul is addressing specifically the Israelites, specifically their condition. And in doing so, we must understand Israel. We must understand what they understood. And so Exodus chapter 9 Verses 16 and 17, and the scripture says this. Chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Here, the Lord is telling Moses what to tell Moses or to tell Pharaoh. And so the Lord's words to Pharaoh are this. I am the one who controls you. I am the one who lets you remain so that my power would be revealed through you. You see, God reveals that by His sovereign choice alone was Pharaoh in and remaining in power. Many times in the account, starting in Exodus chapter 4, all the way through Exodus chapter 9, through Exodus chapter 14, we find that the Lord was going to and did indeed harden the heart of Pharaoh to demonstrate His power. In fact, not only is this an Old Testament concept, it is a New Testament concept within the very few chapters we are looking at here in Romans. So turn back to Romans chapter 9, but as you go past chapter 9, continue on to chapter 11. Chapter 11, because not only did it happen in the Old Testament, but it happens today. Chapter 11, verse 7, says what what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who are chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Verse 25, same chapter, chapter 11. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, there is still a hardening taking place. So it brings us back to the question, how is this fair? We must understand the human condition. And for that, Paul has laid it already out for us. We can look all the way through the book of Romans and we understand that you and I deserve something. Romans 3.23, a verse we should all memorize from childhood. The wages of sin is death. You and I all deserve death. We don't deserve anything else. We deserve death. You and I must understand this. That if the Lord gave us what was fair, what we deserved, you wouldn't have taken the last breath you took. If the Lord gave us what was fair, you and I wouldn't be here today. So let's not have this argument with God. If he's fair or not. Because we recognize that he uses some to display his mercy. And he uses others to display his power. All of this discussion leads to the next question. And that next question is this. If it is by sovereign choice that God elects, 
then how can God still find fault? How can God still find fault? Let's get right to the heart of the question in verse 19, chapter 9. The scripture says, Who will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Is it, is it possible for us to squeeze out from the will of God? No. So how can God find fault in that? In the second question, the issue of God's righteousness and just sovereignty is used as an objection to man's responsibility. But when asked how he reconciled the doctrines of divine election versus human responsibility, do you know what Spurgeon said? He said this, I don't, for I never try to reconcile friends. In other words, God's sovereignty and man's election, man's righteousness rather, are friends. We may not know the equation. We don't know how we get from here to here. We don't know the stuff in between. We know some of it, but not all of the pieces of the equation. But again, we must rest in God's sovereignty. That's why Paul brought it up first, is we must recognize His sovereignty. And in recognizing His sovereignty, we recognize that these friends work together. Man is responsible. It is our sin. We were not created to sin, nor were we created in sin. And yet God still uses us to accomplish His will. So Paul turns the tables. And he asks the ask, or he asks a question of the one asking. And he says, what about the rights of the potter? Verses 20 and 21. It says this. It says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or how does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, Paul does not treat this question as an honest inquiry. He doesn't treat this question as someone who's just innocently saying, well, God, how does this work? Because it's not an innocent question. Paul treats this as an attack against the very character of God. And he uses a beautiful illustration that is used often in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. Doesn't the potter have the right to do with the clay as he desires? It is absurd to think that the clay has any right to dictate the outcome or the purpose for which it is used. I mean, the, the potter does not take up the clay, and I had some clay and I forgot it in the back room. Uh, he takes up the clay, and then the clay says, I would like to be a pot of honorable use. No, the clay doesn't talk. The clay has no right to. But while this addresses the right of the potter, it doesn't address the question of human responsibility. But notice Paul's deliberate image. It's what's missing that's important. The potter does not create clay. Potter does not create clay. You go, well, wait a minute, the Lord created us. And so by creating us, He has the rights to do so. Notice the intention. The potter did not create the clay he works with what he has, and he molds it into something useful. While it is true that God created us, and that he molded us, something happened which is not part of the creation. Sin. God did not create us in sin, nor did he create us to sin, but we sinned.
as we consider this, you and I must be very careful never to blame our sinful condition on our God. You and I must be very careful never to blame our Lord for the sin consequences that we endure. However, you cannot say with honest integrity to the Lord, well, you know God, that's the way you made me. Can't do it. Yet, He is using you despite your sinful self. So while He created you, He created you perfect. As He's molding you and shaping you, He's dealing with the sin that is in your life and He's using it still to mold and shape you. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. He is using using you despite your sinful self as a potter with a clay. You see, Paul's point isn't to exercise this whole thing in the grand scheme of creation. His point is this, what is the Lord doing in your life right now? And what is He doing in the lives of those who live? And this is the point Paul now illustrates as we look at the richness of His power. Verses 22 through 26. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I'm going to stop there for just a moment, but I want to pick up some more details here in a second as well. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Did you catch what Paul is saying? What if God, who will give you what you deserve, to reveal His power, and that is right, and that is just, But what if that God waited to give you what you deserved so that His glory would be revealed in the vessels of mercy? Continue with me. It says, And He did so to make known the vessels, verse 23, uh, make the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, but not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. You see, this new question reveals two groups and we need to understand. One is vessels of wrath and the other is vessels of mercy. And attached to both of them is this word prepared. But this word prepared is unique in that in English it's the same word, but in Greek it is not. Because as it relates to the vessels of wrath, the word preparation does not clearly bring God into the picture. It's a total different word. It's not even the same word. But when we talk about vessels of mercy being prepared beforehand, this is an active participle and clearly God is seen as the one doing the preparing. Paul made a very significant shift. And we miss it totally in English unless we know something about what's going on. Because one is prepared. Who prepared the vessels of wrath? The moment you sinned, for the first time, the vessels of wrath were prepared for destruction. And that's what you rightly deserve. 
But we read a passage out of Ephesians chapter 2 for scripture reading this morning. And I hope that you make the connection. I'm going to make it for you in a, in a minute, another connection to it. But I hope you make the connection that God is in the business of moving vessels of wrath into vessels of mercy. And that is what this passage is about. God's sovereignty to move you from one destined to wrath to new life in Christ. The relationship here is one in which John Stott says, certainly God has never prepared anybody for destruction. It is not, or is it rather not, by their own evil doing that prepared themselves for it? So what is the point of God's enduring with patience? Look with me again to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to take a a portion of our scripture reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. You see, your condition before Christ was wrath. That's what you deserved. That's what you will receive. And yet, in God's sovereignty, God's patient endurance is to keep the window of opportunity open for all those who will accept Christ as Savior and turn from vessels of wrath, destined to destruction, into vessels of mercy. Vessels of wrath can become vessels of mercy only one way. And if you know Christ as Savior, you are a vessel of mercy. The only way, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, just just past the verses we read earlier, is by faith in Christ alone. By grace through faith in Christ alone. You see, the window, Paul says in verses 24 and 26, is open to not just the Jews, but because of God enduring with the vessels of wrath that were Israelites, it has come to you and I who are Gentiles. And those who are not called His people are called His people. Quoting from Hosea 1 and 2, the Gentiles have a short opportunity to participate in this patient endurance of the Lord. But as we shared a moment ago, that door is closing very soon. That door is closing very soon. And the Lord will restore Israel to all the faithfulness, keeping in faithfulness to His promises. Look at what Paul says. Verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. We have a consistent remnant for Israel today. We have a consistent remnant through World War II. We have a consistent remnant in Babylon, in Assyria. We have a consistent remnant in Rome of believers who are Jews, who are elect by God, who will be used to carry on the Israel of Israel we looked at last week. 
those who are believing Jews within the physical line of Israel. God's not done with Israel, folks. And He's bringing them back. And He has much to do with them. Having broadened His instruction to Jews and Gentiles, now Paul turns His attention just back to one group, Israel. It is the remnant that we saw last week to be the Israel of Israel. It is the remnant of true believing Israel that will see the completion of the promises that were made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That were made to David. That were made in the New Covenant and the Palestinian Covenant. All of those promises belong to one specific group of people. You and I who are Gentiles receive the blessings, some of them, but the covenants, the promises, belong to Israel of Israel, the remnant of believing Israel. And God will fulfill what He has promised. While the Gentiles participate in the blessings, the promises still belong to Israel. Quoting from Isaiah 10, Paul reminds the Jewish believing remnant that by God's sovereign and righteous choice and calling, He will preserve a remnant through whom He will fulfill all that He has promised. And then verse 29. Complete fulfillment. Verse 29. It says, and just... Actually, let me back up to verse 28 as well. It says, For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Thoroughly and quickly. That's Isaiah 10. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now quoting from, here in verse 29, now quoting from Isaiah 1, the promise of posterity is recounted for the Jews to be part of and the Gentiles to take joy because of. You and I are not part of that remnant. You and I are not part of that posterity. But God's perseverance and preservation of that remnant allows you and I the blessings that we did not deserve. The blessings that you and I don't own that are promises to Israel. Promise of posterity is recounted because this final quote emphasizes God's grace in sparing the remnant of Israel. Because without His grace, without His election, there would be no posterity of Israel. So, as we ask this question, Romans chapter 8 says that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And then immediately following that, Paul says, I believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God. As demonstrated in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we come to all that Paul expands upon, and then our mind goes to Israel, what about Israel? Have they been separated from the love of God? John, or Paul says rather that because there is a continued remnant, Israel of Israel, you and I who believe can have immense confidence. Because God will fulfill what He said He would fulfill. He will keep His promises to His people the way He said He would keep them. Richard Freeman states, while God's perfect righteousness requires Him to deal with Israel's sin and rebellion, His love for Israel, His grace and mercy will not allow her to experience the annihilation experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. And you and I who believe should take tremendous joy in the security of our salvation. 
because of the sovereignty of our great God. One of the reasons Romans 9 through 11 is so important is that it substantiates for all believers God's trustworthiness to Israel and to all of his saints. If God couldn't keep the promises he made to Abraham and his descendants, promises of a perpetual people, a promised land for his people, and a king on the throne of David, then why should we believe anything that he has promised in the scriptures for us? But God has kept his promises. They will all be fulfilled. And we can trust him for our eternal souls. Let's close in word of prayer. Father, we have moved through a passage in Romans chapter 9 that deals with the difficult doctrine of election, deals with the difficulties of human will, human responsibility, human choice. But we praise you because Paul deals with God's sovereignty, your sovereignty. Lord, you have the right to rule. But you did not exercise it in wrath as you would have been just to do. But with patient endurance. Handling the vessels of wrath for your own glory. So that the vessels of mercy could come to know you as Savior. So that we could be secure in our salvation. So that we too would demonstrate your glory. Lord, I do not know everyone in this room. I do not know where they are at spiritually. But I pray that if there is one here today that does not know you as Savior. That they will not walk out those doors without being changed. I pray that your spirit would be doing a work in their hearts and lives now. Lord, I know that many who are here today do know you as Savior. And in a similar sense, I pray the same for them, that they will not be able to walk out of those doors without being changed today. Changed by your word. Secure in the salvation that has been given to us because you are a God who fulfills his promises. As we look at Israel, we recognize that indeed you have not forgotten them. But as an errant child, you are chastening them so that one day very soon you may bring them back to the land you promised them, to the king that you promised to them, to the reign that is rightfully theirs. Lord, we know this is confused in our world today. Many uh, in the church have confused it, but I pray that your word would not be confused today, that it would have been spoken clearly that would impact our hearts in a manner in which we are changed because of your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you beyond words can express. In your son's name we pray. Amen.